The following Dharma encounter with Jeffrey Shug and Arnold Roshi took place at Zen Mountain Monastery at the conclusion to a week-long meditation session. As you'll hear, Dharma encounters begin with the introduction of a topic related to Zen practice and training. Students then volunteer to present their understanding of the topic or a question for the Dharma encounter teacher to reflect on. The presence of fellow students means that anyone in attendance can benefit from the exchange. We hope you enjoy. Good morning, everyone. And uh, good morning to all of you who are joining us from elsewhere, particularly those Sangha members in the city who are at the Fire Lotus Temple, I think, are joining us this morning. So this Dharma encounter will bring our Ango to a conclusion. And um, we've been studying birth and death, essential teaching of Buddhism. Through Dogen's teachings, uh, early sutra of the Nirvana, the death of the Buddha, and his final teachings. <clears throat> and I wanted to, I'm not going to say too much about the format of Dharma Encounter, because I've done that last couple months, and if you need more information, ask somebody at lunch. Um, <laughs> I want to concentrate on, on the uh, subject. So yesterday I spoke about um, Yunmen's Every Day is a Good Day. And uh, I'd hoped to plan to set that, set this up a little bit more than I did yesterday. I went off my notes, and that's where the time went. And so I'll say a little bit more this morning. So an essential teaching of, of the middle way is this, it's the middle path between all dualities, all things that seem to stand against each other in opposition, in contrast. And it's that, it's those dualities, it's the existence in our mind of things that stand apart and stand facing each other that is the ground and the necessary cause of all of human suffering. There can be no conflict with, except for a subject and object. There can be no comparison, discrimination, no hatred, no greed. And whether that object is a person or a thing, whatever it might be. And so in that sense, dualities have everything to do with everything. And so birth and death is an essential duality because we are alive and we cherish our life. We cling to it. It's fleeting, and then there's death. And so, what is the point of it all? As though if there were no death, and we lived forever, that question would be resolved, which I don't think it would. But death brings an urgency. All dharmas, as being non-dual, this is not just a, an idea or philosophy, it's based in the nature of things. All things have one essenceless essence. So how do we live that truth, this essential truth that the teachings are pointing to constantly, that our practices and training is constantly bringing our attention to? We speak of the relative and absolute, another duality. 
how do we live in this truth? How do we practice it, understand it correctly? And how does realizing non-duality liberate us? There's a path of liberation, and that to realize the real nature of things, that they're fundamentally empty and fundamentally non-dual with all phenomena, how does that actually liberate us? Why is that presented and verified as liberation? In other words, how does it help you? How does it give you today? When we don't understand, aren't living within that, then there's some sorrow, a lot of pain and unhappiness. And so we have teachings that ordinary life fits the absolute like a box in its lid. The absolute works together with the relative like two arrows meeting in midair, an impossibly perfect moment. The subject and objective spheres have the same nature. And at the same time, they're different. They're inseparable. They're unified, but they work differently. Each abides in its own state in emptiness, and its form, the way it appears, makes the character and appearance of that seem different. Dogen says both the entire earth and the entire sky appear in birth and also in death. All things, all dualities, all opposites appear in birth and in death. They're all inclusive. However, it's not that one and the same entire earth and sky are fully manifested in birth and in death. Although they are not one, they're not different. Although they're not different, they're not the same. Although they're not the same, they're not many. So Dogen and all of these teachings are using language which really arises out of subject and object to try and speak about something that ultimately it can't. It can point, but it can't actually convey the truth of that. That's what we have to do. All things return to the one. What does the one return to? All waves depend on the ocean. Is the ocean dependent on anything? The ocean is your self-nature. And so all of these ways of looking at these opposites in the world, heaven and hell, right and wrong. How are they resolved in liberation? How does our practice free us and give us clear, direct understanding? And how is it when that is coming forth in our lives? Yunman says, every day is a good day. And I, one of the things I said yesterday in the talk was that to examine that, we have to release good from our idea of good. Each word has a definition, and there's a reason why that word is being used. And yet, at the same time, we have to liberate that word from its definition, because that confines it. So what does human mean by good when he says every day is a good day? Zhao Zhou asked, his teacher, Nanquan, what is the way? And Nanquan said, ordinary mind is the way. And so these teachings can seem very difficult, very complex, very difficult to understand. And then Yunmen says, every day is a good day. Nanquan says, ordinary mind is the way. 
Dogen says the undivided activity of birth and death, the non-dual nature of birth and death, is like a young person bending and stretching effortlessly, easy. Or it's like someone asleep at night reaching for the pillow without any thought. This is realization in a vast, wondrous light. Dogen also said there's a simple way to become a Buddha, to realize and manifest these challenging teachings. He says, when you refrain from unwholesome actions, you're not attached to birth and death, are compassionate towards all sentient beings, respectful to your elders, kind to those younger or in a position that may be lower in some sort of structure than you. When you don't exclude or desire anything, have no thoughts or worries, then you will be called a Buddha. Seek nothing other than this. Ordinary mind is an important teaching, very present in Zen tradition. It's also present in other traditions, present in Tibetan tradition. And in Tibetan, ordinary mind, ordinary, has two meanings. One is a common state, in other words, the ordinary way we understand ordinary, and a natural state. Ordinary mind refers to the natural condition of the mind, which is luminous and untarnished by defilements. It functions within delusion, but it isn't deluded, and it doesn't delude. An old Tibetan master, Shuripa, said, ordinary mind is pure when left in its natural condition. Don't corrupt it through interference. Don't try to grasp onto it. Don't try to release it. Simply leave it in its original state. Milarepa said, meditators who try to grasp ordinary mind are deluded. Ordinary mind will elude you when you try to grasp it. Another master, Gampopa, said, to cultivate ordinary mind is supreme amongst all practices. Ordinary mind is Buddha embodied in a human form. Ordinary mind is Buddha embodied in a human form. And so what I wanted to take up this morning, I thought a fitting way to bring all of this study that we've been engaging in, these teachings, especially on birth and death, that go very deep in the Dharma, but also deep within us, because they're really talking about the great things of our lives. So how do you understand ordinary mind? Ordinary mind is the way. If the ordinary mind is different from everybody's everyday mind, how is it different? And when you realize it, does that make you different from everybody else? If it's the same, then why are we here? Why are we practicing? If it's the same, then why isn't everybody living an enlightened life? So how do you understand ordinary mind? And how do you understand every day is a good day? What is good in this sense? And what is it that you call today? To cultivate ordinary mind is supreme amongst all practices. It is Buddha embodied in a human form. And so, in other words, how do we understand, practice, and then bring forth these teachings? How do you understand ordinary mind is the way? Every day is a good day. 
in relationship to the two truths of absolute and relative. So that's what I wanted us to investigate a little bit. Since everyone at the end of the session is returning to your everyday life, your ordinary life, and is bringing your mind with you as you do everywhere you go. And so you have, we've all been, who are in session, we're practicing throughout the week, practicing this mind of Buddha, this mind of meditation, this mind of stability and patience within an atmosphere of silence and stillness and simplicity. And now off you go. into the fray. So doesn't it seem most important to take up these teachings that are both so, as I spoke about yesterday when I first heard them, were so provocative and at the same time inviting. Could it be? How could it be? So, Let's have, invite any of you who are doing the ongo and weren't able to come to the March and April Dharma Encounters. So everybody gets a fair chance. And um, we're going to start, I believe, with Chike. Okay? And so we can... And uh, Chike will do three bows. As she begins, everybody else will just do one. Dharma Encounters, one of those moments where the sort of inner private aspect of our practice becomes more shared, public, an offering. So, Sanji, during our practice of life and death, I've come to many understandings about how that functions in my life. um, I'm, I'm of this earth. I'm part of the functioning ecosystem of this universe, of this planet. I have skin cells that die every day, you know, hay hair. I am actively aging, moving into a different phase of my life. So I experience things that have changed, much loss. Um, and every moment is a birth as well. Every opportunity um, to interact with my world, people in it, objects, things. So that's one understanding I've had, the cycle of my life, um, the physical reality of that, and the birth and death of ideas. Um, you know, what once as the sort of social justice warrior, things that I believed have changed over time and gotten bigger and broader. Mm -hmm. So when I think about what is a good day, since you said that yesterday, I was reflecting on how that lands with me. And I thought, well, one thing that's been amazingly good in my life is coming across this Dharma. Mm -hmm. And I counted. And the first time I heard the words of the Dharma was in 1993 at the Fire Lotus Temple in Chelsea, and it was Miyotai Sensei. And I sat there, and I was like, who is this awesome, dynamic woman speaking these words that feel right and true? Could it be? Could I learn that? Whoa, wow. And it opened up a possibility 
for me about mm-hmm. how to work with my suffering and the pain I was drowning in the South Bronx, helping people try not to be evicted and, and feeling outraged. And I was angry all the time and furious. And, and, but she seemed so peaceful. And then I came up to the ZDW here and y'all all seemed really peaceful. And I was like, wow, okay, I want more of that. I want more of that. So when I think of what is a good day, I think, well, quite literally, I could be dead, right? So when I pass into a different form, whatever that's going to be, I won't have the opportunity anymore to practice my difficult emotions and my difficult relationships and enjoy the beautiful moments, right? I won't have that opportunity. So one way it lands with me that a good day is one where I have the opportunity to see the functioning mm-hmm. of what is going on in here and what I'm creating. And yeah. so, what, yeah. Yeah, you might think of your hardest day ever and wish you could have that again. Right. So, but what about when, you, when you're not thinking? What is a good day then? Well, you what know. What is it when there's, no, when there's no idea? Like the reaching back for the pillow? You tell me. I like that. I love that reaching back to the pillow. But what is in the midst of that, the world that you've dedicated yourself to for so many years, where there is so much pain and suffering, and that you are training, teaching young warriors who can easily fall into the same things that you have fallen into? What is a good day? What is it? Every day is a good day when it's all coming apart. I think finding my ability to meet each moment, each person with as much compassion and generosity and skill as I can muster. And I will, it'll resonate sometimes and sometimes it won't. And And so what about when it doesn't seem enough? I trust this practice, you know? I trust this Sangha. I trust our ancestors. They're with me in this. And I can only do my best. I can only do whatever I've got in the moment, and and it's enough. And I'll try again in a new way to continue to wonder about how to do my best. Thank you for your teaching. So Sanchi. I was um, quite moved by Hogan's Hogan's Dumber talk this week, and um, it's particularly struck that we can't really know death, and death, whatever that is, can't really know life. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why I read into this. Well, maybe dead is concerned. Dead is satisfied with being dead. Mm-hmm. And but we don't seem quite satisfied with being alive. Well, we can't know the the physical death, right? Beforehand, right? But is that all there is to death? Is that all that's happening in death? Is in other words, is there any aspect of of the, of what is happening in the moment of physical death that is happening all the time? Uh, yeah. And? And 
it makes life a lot more. But what is it? What might that be? What is that? Letting go of. Letting go. Of casting off. Well, that's an essential practice. Yeah. But what is living and dying? Why? I mean, you know, is all of this just so that we can die well? In those few moments or whatever it amounts to? Not all of it. Is there a dying that's happening all along while the body lives? Say something about that. What is it that's dying? The old moment that I want to hold on to that is not alive anymore and needs to go so the new, next moment can come alive and be alive fully. And, and in that dying and, and coming alive, <clears throat> what is the nature of those moments? Where did the old moment go? Where did the new one come from? I don't know. Well? They put, they poof. And check it out. Poof. Go find. <laughs> right? Are they in a room somewhere? <laughs> I can't go back and retrieve them. <laughs> Where are those? Does anyone see the thought arise before they become aware of it? Can anyone see the thought after you've let it go? Where are they coming from? Where do they go? What is this emphasis on coming and going? That in birth nothing comes. What is the thing that does not come? May your life go well. Thank you for your teaching. Because that is the question at the heart of how, you know, sometimes people ask, why, why is emptiness important? I just want to live a good life. I just want to be of service and help others. I don't want to cause any more pain. Why is, why is all of this emptiness stuff important? Shasanji, um, every day is a good day. Uh, well, I think it's a, a particular perspective from the, the ordinary mind. Um, and when I think about when is every... Can I ask you a question about that? Mm. So if it's a different perspective... Well, I, I just think that it's... Um, if it's a different perspective, the Buddha said that too will end and decay. Mm -hmm. So if it's just a different perspective, mm -hmm. is that something that can liberate you, you can rely on? Yeah. If it's just ha a matter of having a different perspective. Right, right. Yeah, I wonder about that, right? Because mm. it's what we practice, mm. and we have moments of clarity, mm. moments of feeling, uh, oh, this, mm -hmm. this sort of, this feels like the ordinary mind. And what happens, right? what happens to those moments? Where do they go? Um, Can you keep them? Yeah, so I think it's what Yosha was talking about with these patterns of, you know, our habit patterns, mm -hmm. you know, they arise in our mind, um, sort of clouding, uh, it's like structures. Right. Uh, and so, but the ordinary mind is, is still there, uh, um, but there's something else kind of um, clouding. Well, one of the things that's important 
to appreciate about ordinary mind because it's it's very easy to just come to all kinds of conclusions about that is as one teacher said <clears throat> people often think ordinary mind refers to the aspect of mind that is non-conceptual in other words having no thought however this is not correct Ordinary mind means mind that is unstained by ordinary perceptive forms, cultivating non-conceptuality and rejecting conceptuality in meditation is not what is meant by ordinary mind, right? Because we can easily think, because we see how our thoughts, you know, trouble us and bind us and weigh us down and lead to all kinds of problems. And so we think, well, if I just wasn't thinking, if I just wasn't having these thoughts, mm -hmm. if I wasn't having these ideas and projections, then everything would be great. Mm -hmm. But that's not the world we live in. That's not the mind and body we live in, mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, just to pick up on what you said, is that if, if Buddhism is, is, were to be understood as we come in with a diluted perspective, and then we need to just correct that and have a true perspective or a correct perspective. From the Buddhist perspective, that's just another perspective. Mm -hmm. It may be correct in terms of it's in accord with the Dharma and in accord with reality, but it's still just a perspective, right? It comes and goes too, just like everything else. Mm -hmm. And so that can't ultimately free us. It can't ultimately be something we rely upon because it's it comes and goes. And so what's, what's the difference between that perspective and the the... That which is not a perspective. The real thing. When they're the same. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. If they're unified, why, why does Buddhism continually create two? Why do we talk about absolute and relative if they're, if they're one reality? Why do we talk about birth and death if they're one reality? Enlightened and deluded. Why? Yeah. How can we practice our way to having that temporary perspective? Well, think of when the Buddha was enlightened and he began teaching. You know, what did he begin with? He didn't, he didn't say, sit down and let me tell you about enlightenment. Oh my God, it's amazing. <laughs> right? You're not there. I wish you were there, but you're not there. Right? That's not what he did. Where did he start? Uh, with the Four Noble Truths. And the beginning... Life is suffering. Life is dukkha. Mm -hmm. So the teachings teach us both where we are, they have to meet us exactly where we are, and at the very same time, they have to convey that there's more. That, think, that things as they are mm -hmm. in our perception is not all they are. Mm -hmm. Right? So they have to both be in accord with our delusion in a certain sense, because that's, that's the view we're bringing to it. But at the same time, not be stuck in that, not be actually grounded in that. That's why skillfulness is so important. May your life go on. Thank you for your teaching. The practice is the same way. It has to constantly embrace and hold perfectly our delusion at the same time that it's helping to free us from that. So, Shanshi, 
I know this isn't quite how you framed it, but when you brought up the 15th day, for me it brings up the full moon because I think that's part of it somewhere. So when I think of every day is a good day, it's that totality, the experience, the glimpse of the ordinary mind that is everything that mm -hmm. we all share. Yeah, good. So how do, then how do you, where is that in a moment or in a day that seems so imperfect, so incomplete? You can't even find the moon. Forgive me for taking it one more picture further. And uh, that I then go to the moon above the clouds being the same moon and the mountains and rivers below being all different and each being happy in their unity and variety. But in my variety, in my difference, in this motel room that I was born into, I feel like there's a glitch that I can't fix because it lets everything in. And when it lets everything in, then I have neurodivergent meltdowns periodically. So if I'm going to call something a good day, I have this memory that my entire life I have made people closest to me have very bad days. So I don't know how to answer your question about how to bring it into every day. I guess I have to let go the fact that I ruined everyone's day. Yeah. And so that glitch, oh, that glitch, right? Everyone has one. Everyone. And we are taught, and it's not hard to teach us to believe in it. In fact, it may be one of the easiest things. It's interesting, our sort of inclination, how we incline towards that. You know, we incline towards it so much easier, it seems, to go off the rails, to transgress, to, to live in greed, anger, and delusion, and to get other people to come along with us than it is to live in accord with our basic nature, which is not harming and compassionate and loving and intimate. I think it's one of the great challenges of every religious tradition is how do you explain that, that craziness, right? But in Buddhism, it's that sense of glitch and that whatever our conditions in, whether they're internal, whether they're external, they can seem to support and confirm and validate that sense of glitch. And so causing conditions is, is appearing in every moment. And those can be internal and external. And our great challenge, you know, we were talking about this yesterday in terms of Mara, is to no longer, is to begin to not be seduced, duped by what we've learned, what we've been told, what we tell ourselves. And that's a, that's a difficult task. It's difficult to not believe in what seems so believable. And particularly when we're when we're, that's being affirmed or originated from those around us, particularly those who are here expressly to protect us, to teach us how to be in this world in the best way. And when that doesn't happen, and it often doesn't, 
then we learn those lessons and they go in deep. And so it is, it is a deep surgical endeavor, right? To not actually remove anything, but just to expose, to expose, expose ourselves to the truth, expose those deceptions to the truth so we can see and experience things clearly. And that's why the teachings are so important to, to bring into our mind and to develop faith in those teachings, for instance, of Buddha nature, over and over, to do meta practice towards others, but also towards ourselves as a, as a um, not as so much a corrective, as a, a transformation, an enlightening, an illuminating of what has been um, wrongly, unjustly planted. And so, and only the courageous can do that. And I know a few of those. May your life go well. Thank you for your teaching. Shosanji. You can move out. Yeah. You move. I move. That's it. <laughs> so uh, every day is a good day. Every uh, dokasan is a good dokasan, even in public. Um, so how I practice this, um, well, what, what does it mean to me? So to me, um, what it brings up is um, uh, reality. Um, and reality without an alternate. So this is it. So, um, uh, and noticing that all the problems that I see are coming from holding reality against an alternate mm -hmm. that only exists in my mind. Mm -hmm. So as an example, um, for decades, um, my mom had all sorts of shortcomings and she didn't, she probably didn't love me. Uh, and um, I did a lot of work and I saw all of that was my projection of what love needed to be. Mm -hmm. And I let that go. Mm -hmm. I apologized to her. She didn't know what I was apologizing for, but from for noticing the ways that I had withheld my love from her mm -hmm. because of this idea. Mm -hmm. I've got a great mom. <laughs> She's amazing. Mm -hmm. And my um, relationship with her has been transformed mm -hmm. just in time. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't trade that for anything in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that that's happening all the time. Yeah. It happened this week, you know, work practice. You're not doing kitchen duty the way I want you to do kitchen duty. You're annoying me. And mm -hmm. I just... And so then, then in those moments, those smaller moments, 
So reconnect with my breath, let that go. Yeah. Um, and just, um, you know, in practice and it's, it's like weeding it. You're never done. You know, there is no roundup for my thoughts. They're always my habit patterns are gonna <laughs> keep coming back. Well, yes. And I mean, that is an analogy the Buddhism itself uses, right? And their the, the thoughts, you know, we can, we, as Kazan Zenji says, we can sweep and sweep and want to clear away all the dust. But there is another bit, yeah. lighting on the mirror. But we can, we can understand that to mean that I will always have these thoughts. I will always be trapped in these emotions. I will always be stuck. I'm just going to be more adept at like managing or house cleaning, right? It's not that. It's that when we realize the self-nature of these thoughts, when the transgression is transformed into the host, those thoughts no longer offend. And they're not a problem. They never were. Never were. The problem. There is no problem. Now, some people, it's wonderful, you're, what you, you know, this journey that you've had with your mom. You know, sometimes we're not loved in the ways that we actually need to be. That happens. Yeah. And sometimes we are being loved, but we can't recognize it, right? Because there are many ways in which we're not being loved, but there are other ways in which we are from the very same person. And then sometimes it's just not happening, you know? And so every day is a good day. These teachings are for every possible conceivable and inconceivable moment and situation because they're, they're not defined, right? That means in order to meet the moment, we have to not be defined. In order to realize Buddha has no fixed form, you must be one with no fixed form. And then one more thing I just want to touch on, just to use you as a case study, in a sense, in terms of just language. Because what you said is very normal, it's very natural. But I just want to use it as a way to um, highlight the importance of language. Language is so powerful. Think of four of the ten wholesome actions the Buddha devoted to language, right? In a, in a, in a tradition that recognizes that language can never fully convey. That language is how we create karma. I mean, we're seeing this everywhere of the, of the destructive nature of language. So, when we talk to ourselves, those words have power, right? And so, j just to be aware of that, and I'm just, mm. if you will, j you know, when you said, what those teachings mean to me, right? Sometimes people say, the way I feel about those teachings, you know, those are, it's very harmless in a certain kind of way, and we, I think we all understand what you mean or what anybody else means. But if we look at that carefully, is, is it, is, do you want this to be about what it means to you, mm. your Dharma understanding? Or do you want it to be about what the Dharma is? And then bring yourself to that mm. in the same way that you had to move forward to the microphone. Right? Another way is get the microphone and bring it to you. <laughs> right. right? So it matches where you are. And so it's, it can seem like a small thing, Right? And in a way it is, kind of harmless, but because language is powerful. And we say those things over and over and over again. So in a way we're cultivating a particular kind of relationship 
with the Dharma and ourselves. And of course, yes, we go to the Dharma, we study it and realize it so that it does have meaning. It is personal. It is in this body and mind. But it's the Dharma, right, that has been taught and transmitted over these centuries, rather than my, particularly within our, you know, intensely, neurotically, individualistic, me-oriented culture, right? Those words can just sort of blend right in with it's, it's what I want. You know, Dada Roshi used to talk about cocktails in, where, you know, somebody walks by, you're at a party, they have a tray of appetizers, and it's like, you know, all, all there is the training. The teachings, practices, and it's like, well, I have one of those. No, I'm not interested in that. <laughs> Two of those, please. You know, cocktails in. Rather than actually going, that I yield, I bend. Dogen said, I have to step forward. Right? It's kind of radical in our culture where we want everything to come to us. You know, you get whatever you want. That's the slogan, right? And in Buddhism, that's true. But it's different. Thank you, you for your well. teaching. Shosanji. <laughs> My friend died the other day. It was a good day. How? How was it a good day? What was that day that was good? were there with her and um, oh, when it was time to eat someone made a meal and it was when, when it was someone needed to sleep they went to sleep and then someone would come back and sit with her and mm -hmm. meditate We know how to do that, don't we? I'm so grateful. We know how to be together in life and death. We know how to work together. I mentioned this morning, you know, how does a session work? How does it work? We're not talking to each other all day, all week, you know. And then that's what becomes possible when the needs of others become important. And it's not that the self is excluded. And that's very important to understand. We're not trying to demolish or ex destroy or get rid of the self, because the self is just an idea anyway. But the sense of self, right, that does arise in our consciousness, we can be self-aware, that is an aspect of our consciousness. And sometimes it's helpful to be aware when you're not taking care of yourself. Right? Or we're being self-critical in a way that's not helpful to ourselves to want to take care of that one. It's helpful. It's just not diluting it with a sense that because I have that sense of self, that means I exist in the way that my senses seem to convey that I'm separate from everything else and what is me is most important and what is mine, you know, keep your hands off and all the rest. And so moments like that, when we, when we, not so much lift it out of, but it just become our naturally more expansive self. That's why ordinary mind is spoken of as your natural mind. 
It's not the mind that we have to create and cultivate and then keep you know, on a short leash. It's the mind that naturally arises when all of those habitual tendencies are just relaxed. Those two don't have to be exiled or put into the cellar. We know what happens then. And though in that, in thinking about such an experience, a good experience, all those good things coming together, and then to, just as a reflection, and to really utilize this teaching, is to reflect on it every day as a good day, if that had gone very, very differently. Much difficulty, much disharmony, much pain. Then, then how? Just to, just to bring that to mind. There's always, every moment, there's the opportunity to go this way or that way. And how, why is that possible? Why is it possible that things are never set? What's the nature of things that they're never set? They're impermanent. They arise and fall away. You need a little patience sometimes. <laughs> because they linger sometimes in their impermanence, moment after moment. And that they're impermanent is just another way of saying they have no fixed nature. That's what emptiness, that's what selflessness is. So what is... What is being given the opportunity to choose this or that? The one who needs such an opportunity and uses it well. May your life go well. Thank you for your teaching. Shoshanshi, I was um, working in the dye studio this week, dyeing a bunch of stuff indigo with... Um, dye that was made from plants that I helped plant at the May session last year. And then this morning I was in the dye garden watering indigo plants that were planted this year. And I just... It's not complicated, actually. During the Ongo intensive, I was flipping through some of the old mountain records and I saw pictures of, of you and Hoja and Hogan, very young. And? I don't understand it, but it's not complicated. Hmm. It's true. Does that scare you? Well, Are there moments where that, the truth of that is frightening? Yeah. Yeah. What about that? What do you see? Why is it frightening? Because I'm not going to figure it out. I'm not going to get something. Mm -hmm. And also, like, I'm not, I'm not, practicing for later it's happening now mm -hmm. and I make it complicated because I want to understand yeah I mean sometimes we do just because we're finding our way but also it's so much of our what we've been taught you know that the more complicated something is the more serious the more profound the more powerful you know you get something and it's got a big manual you're never going to read but it's impressive <laughs> that it's got this man look at all the shit it can do I'm never going to do any of it, but it's, it, you know. 
that's what we like. And so it's very common that when that complication falls away, right, in stillness, in silence, in just a reality thoroughly experienced, as Dogen speaks of it, sometimes the impulsive reaction is fear. And in that fear, we, we reach back for the comfort of all of that stuff. And so we just have to, you entered the gate this week, the mountain gate, into training. And so it means going back again and again. I talked about repetition and the, how repetition is how we form these habits in samsara. But repetition is, there are good habits. There are habits that are not based in, in distractedness, but are based in mindfulness, right? And that in that, everything becomes more calm and returns to its original state. Returns. It's a, just a way of speaking. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? Why? Correct that. Where is it returning from? Which is another way of saying... It didn't leave. It's here. And who are we talking about? Me. Exactly. <laughs> May your life go well. Thank you for your teaching. Shosanji. <sighs> In listening to your talk yesterday, um, I was so f- hit with um, what I do. If uh, what I do is if I can come up here and say something really like amazing, then um, you will look at me and go, you are really amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And I have lived my life like that. And it sucks. And so I want to to come up and just say, here it is. Yeah. And you are such a screw up. (laughs) (laughs) Now, now that we have that settled. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that within every grasping, every attachment, every such thought, something right is being desired. Something genuine and important is being sought. Delusion is just our basic nature, confused, right? confused with understanding that's not serving us well. But that what we're actually seeking is needed, Mm -hmm. is desired, right? And so when when we don't find the conditions are right, we don't find a path, the, the world affirms our delusion. We will find those things, purpose, community, love, in all kinds of sideways manner. And so, but that at the core, 
there's something good. And if we can really trust that and begin seeing that, then that screw-up is not a big problem, right? Because she's actually pursuing wisdom mm -hmm. with wisdom. And that that view that you give words to becomes your ally, not your nemesis. That view of whether it's seeking pride and recognition, whether it's, and whether the other side of that is just self-doubt and insecurity, those aspects of ourself that are strong and recur and have, have purchase, those, that's the stuff by which we are going to liberate ourselves. Right, and it's what drives a lot of my practice yeah. is, 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 yes. Yeah, and it, but it's like fire. You have to learn how to hold it well, mm -hmm. right? Because otherwise it'll burn you. Yeah. And that's what so much of practice is. And so much of the struggle of practice is, ah, you know, learning how to hold it. When it's still, when it's, but not yet fully understanding how to hold it. So we're holding it, but it's burning us, right? Mm -hmm. That there is movement, but we're still caught, right? We don't fully believe it, but we still believe it. Both all of that's happening. So in that way, those dualities are, can help us, right? To see that nothing is just one thing. No one is one thing. Right, but without the judgment. Like, to see it without the judgment. Yeah, and I mean, the judgment, why is the judgment a problem? Because it... it, it it doesn't allow you, it doesn't allow me to feel free. Because when you're judging, I'm constricted. With what? With my mind. With, with and what's the, in the idea of right and wrong. The judgment itself. Yeah. The judgment itself is like a, a veil, a, a cloud. Yes. That, yes. That takes over, that we can't see through. Mm -hmm. What we see is the judgment. Right. The cloud. Right. And we don't necessarily even see that it is that, right, when we're really caught in it. That's why, that's what's so difficult about practice is how do you know that you're dreaming while dreaming, mm -hmm. right? How do we know that this voice within us is not true in the moment when it seems so true? That's a, a bit of magic, mm -hmm. right, that exists within each of us. Mm -hmm. May your life go well. Thank you for your teaching. Sure, Sanji. I'm a bit terrified. This whole question of life and death it keeps coming back. It's my second long session I've done. And uh, I think one or two years ago, you also talked about I want to say Uman, but it's not you used the Chinese pronunciation. When, 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 when I, I can't remember the, the right now, but the guy who said it's a good day every day. You men, you men. And this is a guy who lost loose, lost his use of his leg for trying to find a armor or enter into this monster, whatever he was doing, and that makes what I'm going through. Well, he broke his leg. We don't know that he lost the use of it. Ah, so. so. But your point is? point is, when I came in those doors about five years ago, that was a good day. 
you know, when I uh, you know, entered Mountain Gate a year ago, or almost a year ago. That was a really good day. Dropping my glasses into the toilet while cleaning the Sangha house, and then dragging that rug out, the entry rug, and trying to beat the daylights out of that thing to get it clean, turning into a dust bomb myself, not so much so. And how, how was it not? In my head. And so, let's just reenact that if we could. You drop your glasses into the toilet. Right in there, right. covered with that bonhomie powder. It was, it was okay. nasty. So that's, that's the moment. And then what? I was pretty pissed. Okay. But, but that's a word that is describing a very a, a complex of, of moments, of actions. Like what? I mean, what brought, I'm pissed, is sort of the result, the recognition of something. My incompetence, my lack of focus, my uh, inability to at least slow down the, the conveyor belt of stupid thinking that right. gets in here. I mean, this week I was happy to actually get it to stop for about 30 seconds. Okay, so, so now, Joe, just imagine that the same thing happens, and there's no reaction because there's nearly no, no narrative that's necessary. The glasses are in the toilet, <laughs> right? That's it. It's not complicated. Yeah. And so just imagine if, there, if that's all there was, glasses in the toilet, what would you do then? Yes. What would the next moment be? That happened. Pick them up, rinse them off, and that's right. go about my day. If we see that happen once, and actually recognize how much simpler that is yeah. and how utterly unnecessary all the other is <laughs> and the end expenditure of energy for crying out loud yeah because we need to build faith in in what is possible and what is a really what we are actually seeking and see that when we fall into all of that you know self punishment that it's just, it's the train wreck, right, that we expected and we create again. But we need to see that there is another way, and it's just right there, okay? So even if your mind just does react and starts, you know, immediately with all those thoughts, to just be able to say, oh, I, I know you, <laughs> I know those thoughts. Right, yeah. and in that moment, there's a shift because of your mindfulness. Mm. Okay, may your life go on. Thank you for your teachings. I've noticed a lot of you wearing glasses now that fall off <laughs> <laughs> when you when you do bows. It's become quite a thing. <laughs> Something about the design. <laughs> <laughs> I just started wearing readers about a year ago. <laughs> Shosanji. So this is my first time up here for Dharma and Connor. And um, I'm going to start with the thing that just popped right up when you put the topic out of a good day. And um, I immediately thought of January 6th because that was the day um, I worked for the New York State Office of Mental Health and they acquired a bunch of doses of the vaccine. So myself and my colleagues were among the folks that got the vaccine, our first dose very early, you know, mm -hmm. at the beginning of the year. And uh, 
so yeah, that was, um, that was, and then some other stuff, I guess, mm-hmm. happened down in Washington, D.C. that day, reportedly. <laughs> so, so with all respect to Yunmen, Yunmen mm-hmm. right, um, I'm going to go with, I think, good enough, maybe. Is that okay? I mean, is that good enough? I'll go with good enough, you know what I mean? For some days, you know? I mean, it's a big world. There's constantly lots of, there's myriad karma going on every moment, right? I'll go with you there. And good enough. Because... And I'll say why. I'll go with you. Because of the ways in which the, the not only false, but the um, destructive, I would say, fantasy of perfectionism has invade, invades our culture. Not has as though it's something new. Invades our culture and society and our minds. And, um, and so that in that, and then we come into Buddhist practice, which, you know, is aiming pretty high. I mean, you have to be pretty audacious to anybody to think, to hear those teachings that you can liberate yourself from suffering and all beings and say, yeah, that's for me. (laughs) (laughs) But we need to be audacious. We need to actually be bold. We need to be confident. We need to bring forth all of those great virtues of the enlightened being at the same time that we are stumbling. And so because of that, that high aspiration that Buddhism invites us into and encourages us to make personal, we can turn that into a kind of neurotic perfectionism with practice. And so in that way, good enough can be an acceptance of what, you, what, what is rather than that expectation or that false goal. Okay? And then, now just go beyond that a little bit. Okay, in other words, let that bring you to the ground okay. of where you actually are, particularly in a moment where you, it, this needs to be good enough because you're fighting yourself, okay. right? Or you're fighting something else, or it will never be good enough. And so let this be good enough. And then once that becomes more available, more integrated, now let that be larger. May your life go okay. well. Thank you for the teaching. There is this clear, bright, natural mind, and it is difficult to trust that there's nothing I need to do. And how do you do nothing? It is difficult to trust. Sometimes it is. But really, it's because it's so easy to trust that it's hard to trust that. Because it's so easy to let go, it's hard to trust that. That's why training exists, is to provide conditions that invite us to do what we may find difficult to do, just simple things, ancient things, like stillness and silence, 
that we may not believe we can do and that we're invited in because with a sense that no, you can. No, you can. All that these teachings are pointing to, yes, they're for you. Yes, you can do this because we are doubting, right? And so developing, letting cultivate that trust, how does it come? How does it grow? What have you seen? Because I've seen this. But what helps it to grow? That I suffer less. Hmm? That I suffer less. That I see more beauty. But what helps you to trust trusting? Trusting. Exactly. Trust itself. Compassion itself cultivates compassion affirms it, verifies it, silence itself. It's all one big, bright, beautiful catastrophe. <laughs> May your life go well. Thank you for your teaching. <laughs> it's so important, and it's always been important in, in Buddha Dharma, to have days like this, weeks like this, places like this, ongos, all these different aspects of training, that in a certain sense make it easier, in a very real sense make it easier. And there's a tremendous strength in that. At the same time, we have to be careful because <clears throat> anything can become a nest, anything. Suffering can become a nest. Letting go can become a nest. Silence and stillness can become a nest. And a nest simply means a place that we begin to fixate on, fix in our mind, depend upon in a way that is not true, and in a sense reify everything again. And so such a teaching as every day is a good day, ordinary mind is the way, you know, in a moment where it just seems so clear and gorgeous, right? Everything is in alignment. It's a beautiful day. And at the same time, to allow ourselves to appreciate that and enjoy that because that is true. And to also not get stuck in that. And so to actually bring forth a teaching like that in a moment, as I spoke about yesterday, that for you is decidedly not good. It's a bad day. It's a hard day. It's a sad day. It's an angry day. It's a violent day. Right? Because these teachings are for then. I remember on September 11th, when the residents were in shock, walking around in shock, having watched the news. <clears throat> and Dada Roshi said, everybody in the Zendo. And we all came up here and sat, and just sat for a while. And then he said, this is what we trained for. This is what we trained for. Because that was the moment, that was the day that we had. 
and then the next day and the next and the next. That day is what we train for. That moment is what we train for. But we ourselves need to bring that to mind. And that's a practice, right? To reflect, to remember, to challenge ourselves, to contemplate. And to come from that place of trust that those teachings are talking about that moment. And even if it's completely valid to have faith in that and have no idea how to find your way into that because of what, what that moment is giving you, I know what that's like. But at least you know that. You know that, and there is a tension there. There's a tension in that dharma that you're bringing forth and that, in a sense, is inviting you in and that sense of impasse, not knowing how to enter. That's completely legitimate, right? And, what's, and the truth of it is, it ain't over. <laughs> it doesn't end there, right? That just becomes the question, right? The inquiry. And so as we're bringing this on go to an end... Let's take some of that with us. And I just want to appreciate all of us that we really have this ability to do this and to think about the how many things are required in our individual lives that just go out in infinite directions. And everything here that is necessary for us to be able to do this simple gathering and so to appreciate and feel grateful, because nothing lasts forever. And when we do appreciate that, we're alive. We're a little bit more alive. When we're grateful, we're a little bit more in contact with what we have in front of us. right? And that our practice is to cultivate this great compassion, selfless compassion, this great heart of the Bodhisattva, and this clear, direct seeing wisdom to bring forth in a world because the world is on fire. Because the world is on fire. And how do we be an enlightening being, a compassionate being in a world that is on fire? So I hope that's a question you put the rest and never stop asking. <laughs> May our lives go well. Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats, and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.